But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found by him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, the word of the Lord. Uh, Just a brief word of explanation because my wife mentioned the fact that our youngest daughter is going to present us with another grandchild. Um, I have two brothers. We all have daughters. Only daughters. Now, that was great. We loved them. We had a blast raising them. But because we only had daughters, there was a 50-year gap between the last boy in the Seaver family and my, bro- my youngest brother was 50 years old when my first grandson was born. So our daughters have come through in a big way. Our, our middle daughter had a, a boy first and then a little girl, and now Amy's had two boys and now a little girl to add to the, to the uh, tribe, and we're, we're thrilled about it. <laughs> boy... Sometimes um, I think I bite off more than I can chew. But this is one of those passages. There is so much in here. And I'm going to do my best with it today. You know, the, the Philippian church was a mostly healthy church. But Paul was concerned that false teaching might infiltrate the church. And particularly teaching that emphasized that our salvation can be based on our own good works. And and Paul opens this passage where the word finally, as if he's about to wrap up this letter to the Philippians. Yet there are additional subjects um, in the remainders of chapter 3 and chapter 4 that we know Paul will be dealing with. In fact, nearly half of the letter is still to come. So actually, the the Greek phrase used here may signal a transition rather than a conclusion. Finally, here for the Greek may not necessarily mean that we're about to close this thing. It may mean a transition. So a better word, or for us anyway, might have been in addition, and then Paul would go on. The purpose then would be to introduce a new thought, or a list of issues that were to follow. And that's basically what Paul's doing here. He then speaks of writing to them about some of the same things again. Topics that it sounds like he's addressed before. So 
What the commentators say is that he's likely reinforcing information here that he's shared with them previously, either in person or by letter. We just don't necessarily have a record of that. And then he says he's sharing these things with them as a safeguard, a heads up, a be on the alert kind of a warning. And at the core, this warning has to do with where we place our confidence for salvation. What's our confidence in for our salvation? Think, think about all the things or people we place our confidence in for a variety of things. We place our confidence maybe in the bank to protect our money, but we don't all do business with the same bank. We, we place our confidence in a doctor to help keep us healthy, but we don't all see the same doctor. We put our confidence in our vehicle to get us where we're going, but we don't all drive the same make. We put our confidence in our investments to provide a secure retirement, but we don't all invest with the same firm or with the same financial consultant. We may even put our confidence in, you know, some abilities we have or, or some training or education that we have. In all these things, we may find our confidence is placed differently than the next person. We have options to choose from. But when it comes to salvation, to our right standing with God, Paul will make it clear in this passage that there is only one in whom we can place our confidence. And by the way, it's not us. So, he... he he starts in this passage then to, to talk about some things. And first of all, when our confidence is rightly placed, number one, we rejoice in the Lord. In Psalm 97, verse 12, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise His holy name. Paul wanted the Philippians to know that a characteristic of believers is that they rejoice in the Lord. It's important to notice that this rejoicing is not a disconnected joy, but it is a rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, Paul connected rejoicing with a relationship. And and what's our cause for rejoicing? Well, it's in the knowledge we have of Jesus and the truths and promises of His Word, in the faith we have in Him, in the oneness we have in Him by faith, because we're heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ, we are called friends of God, because we are being conformed to His likeness, and in the expectation we have from Him of His faithfulness and of eternal life. Is that cause for rejoicing? And so we're to be people who rejoice in the Lord. That's one of the great things we enjoy about coming together, I think. And then he says, we reject, yes, we reject false teaching. When our confidence is in the Lord, we reject false teaching. Paul has some pretty harsh and critical words for those who are spreading false teaching. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators, of the flesh. He calls them dogs. 
Most dogs in those days were filthy scavengers that plagued ancient cities. They roamed in packs, fed on garbage, and occasionally attacked people. Typically, Jews called non-Jews called Gentiles dogs. A term that was intended to be derogatory. Surprisingly, here, Paul refers to Jewish false teachers as dogs. You would never call a fellow Jew a dog. And that's exactly what he's doing in this, in this passage. In Paul's mind, dogs were filthy, unclean, dangerous, and they were to be avoided. Similarly, false teachers were filthy, unclean, dangerous, and were to be avoided. And then he, then he calls them false teachers evildoers. They were provoke, promoting evil by promoting that which was not true. Which was not truth. It was contrary to the truth. In fact, anything that is contrary to the truth should be viewed as evil. Amen? If it's not the truth, it's evil. He then refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. See, the, the first converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ were Jews. But as those early uh, converts fled Jerusalem because of persecution, they began to take the gospel to the Gentiles of the Roman Empire. And in many cases, they heard and responded some of these Jewish converts began to preach another gospel. They were telling the Gentile believers that to be really saved, they had to keep the Jewish law and practice Jewish customs, especially that the men had to be circumcised. Now, while we see this today as kind of an optional thing for baby boys in the hospital, for Jews, circumcision was an essential sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and all of his male descendants. And these men who, who, who promoted this kind of gospel or thinking were called Judaizers. And they presented an ongoing challenge to Paul and to many of the early churches. So, to make his argument about this, Paul compares the circumcision of the flesh with the Old Testament, with what the Old Testament called circumcision of the heart. In, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then in Jeremiah 4, Verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can, can quench it because of your evil doings. And then Paul says, for we, speaking to the Philippians, Gentiles, for we are the circumcision. In other words... Circumcision means nothing if it does not reflect a transformed heart. The outward mark of circumcision only has value if it is accompanied by inward spiritual change. Without inward change, it's only a mark on the body. That's why Paul called them mutilators of the flesh. And though the 
though the Gentiles of, of Philippi did not have that mark, or probably most of them did not, Paul said that they were the circumcision. You guys have been folded into the covenant of God because of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. You may be uncircumcised in the flesh, but you are circumcised in the heart. See, see what the Judaizers were doing was they were, they were preaching a message of Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus. You need these other things too. <clears throat> in their minds and, and eyes, the, uh, cir- salvation had to include circumcision of the flesh. Paul's message was Jesus and circumcision of the heart. And then... We worship by the Spirit. He says, who worship by the Spirit of God? For it is we who are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Any person can go through the outward forms of worship. We can sing the songs. We can raise our hands. We can dance in the aisles. Although we tend to avoid that, but... Unless we are worshiping in the Spirit, the outward show means nothing. It's empty. Jesus referred to that when he said in Matthew 15, 8, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can make a pretty good show, can't we? Only a, only a follower, a true follower of Jesus Christ, is enabled to worship by the Spirit of God. Because true worship is, a, is of supernatural origin. It's the work of the Spirit within us. And it comes out. <clears throat> Jesus said that true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And I'm, I get convicted about this kind of thing. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> it's kind of like um, one of the reasons that when you talk to me on Sunday and say, Pastor such and such, or would you remember such and such, I tend to forget. Because my mind tends to be elsewhere on Sunday morning. I've got these. And so Julie's up here leading us in music, and I'm thinking, okay, let's see the announcements I need to bring, and let's kind of make sure I've got my sermon squared away to my brain. And so my mouth's moving. My hand may come up sometimes, but my heart's not in it. It's not what... It's not worshiping in spirit, folks. And, and I know it's not easy. Sometimes we come in and, you know, we're kind of, man, it's been a busy week. It has been hectic. I just can't believe it. And uh, we got this mental checklist going through our brains. God help us to leave those things at the door. So when we come here, we worship him in spirit. Then we place our pride in Jesus. We place our pride in Jesus. Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ. We take our joy, we take pride in Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't we? He's our Creator. He's our Savior. All good things come from Him. The words Paul uses here are, Glory in Christ. Paul loved the word glory. Of the 37 times it's used in the New Testament, Paul used it 35 times. 
The word glory has the sense of to boast or to exalt in. John MacArthur says that glory describes boasting with exultant joy about what a person is most proud of. Glory describes boasting with exultant joy about what a person is most proud of. Those who have right standing before God know that it is not because of anything within themselves. They stand before God because of what Christ Jesus has done. And so they glory in, they boast about, they exalt in Christ Jesus. And because they exalt in Him, they exalt Him. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And in 2 Corinthians 10.17, he says again, But let the one who boasts, boast about the Lord. Ah, We need to get better bragging about God. And then we we don't put trust in our own efforts. For it is we who are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. There's this belief out there that some adhere to that says it's possible to tip the scales in your favor by doing enough good things to outweigh the bad. You know what I'm talking about? So if I do more good things than bad things in my life, I punch my ticket to heaven. Basically, that's what they believe. The problem is, The Bible tells us that without Jesus, our good works are like so many dirty rags in God's eyes. Boom, the scales have just gone back the other way really quickly. Dirty rags won't get you to heaven. Only Jesus can do that. Those who have right standing before God know that they are utterly incapable of earning or meriting salvation. They know that their confidence, their only confidence lies in what Christ Jesus has done for them and not in what they have done to earn salvation. Amen? So then Paul goes on to tell us where we should not place our confidence. At the end of this passage, I've just been sharing with you, he says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. In other words, if anybody would have confidence about their standing with God and being able to earn their way to heaven, Paul said, well, I, I could say, I, you know, at least in the old life, I, I could have had that kind of confidence. Paul here cites a list of things that before Christ, he put his confidence in. And by the way, as I go through this list, I want you to know there's nothing necessarily wrong with these things in and of themselves. Okay? It's just that If we place our confidence in these things, our confidence is in the wrong place 
for salvation, for a right standing with God. And the first thing he talks about is ritual. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul in his days as a Pharisee was all about ritual. Not only circumcision, but all the traditions, religious celebrations and festivals, all the ritual sacrifices at all the right times for all the right things with, with all the right things. Did you get that? Ritual sacrifices at all the right times for all the right things or maybe all the wrong things with all the right things. You had to have the right lamb or goat or bull or dove or oil or wine or flour. (sighs) Ritual. All about it. But you know what? We have rituals as well. We do. Maybe not as many as the ancient Jews, but we still have them. You know, we can turn any number of religious observances into rituals. Empty rituals. They're those things that many might consider their religious duty. So, yes, I show up for worship services. I observe Christian holidays, Christmas and Easter. I partake of communion. And by the way, I was baptized when I was a kid. All good things. But if we do these things merely to do them, because that's what's expected, because it's the Christian thing to do, it does not impress God and it makes no real difference in our lives. But if we do those things to honor Christ, because we desire to be obedient, because Jesus is at work in our lives, and we have a desire to become like him, then those rituals have meaning, significance, and can be life-changing. but ritual alone does not save us. Then Paul talks about his heritage. He says, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. You have to admit, Paul had quite a pedigree. You know, I have that kind of pedigree too. I do. I'm a fourth generation Nazarene on my dad's side. A third generation Nazarene on my mom's side. I was in the church, I was in church the first Sunday after I was born. And I've been a Nazarene all my life. I attended a Nazarene college and I married a Nazarene girl. <clears throat> Guess you could say I'm a Nazarene of Nazarenes. And as much as I appreciate my heritage, it did not save me. I made Jesus my personal savior when I was 16 years old. Jesus saved me. Now, you could say my heritage certainly laid a great groundwork for me. What's, what's that saying? God has no grandchildren? Okay. I can't ride my parents' coattails into heaven. You know, a godly heritage is truly a blessing. It really is. Some of you had that blessing. Others did not and may have have wished that you had. Nothing wrong with the great heritage. But folks, that won't get us into heaven. It does not save us. Rule keeping. Paul said, "In in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Boy, those guys were rule keepers. Strict rule keepers. I mean even into the minutia of stuff that nobody else would think about. They followed the letter of the law to A.T. You know, rule keeping is really not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with keeping rules unless you think that doing so will save you. 
unless you think that doing so is what makes you holy. That was the problem the Pharisees had. It was all about rule keeping and nothing about relationship. You know, I can open the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, memorize the section on the code of Christian conduct, do all the do's and not do all the don'ts. But if my motivation for keeping the rules is anything other than a desire to be obedient to Jesus because I have a personal relationship with Him, because I love Him and love others, then I've missed the point. And when you think about keeping the rules as in living according excuse me, to the Ten Commandments, and then the way Jesus summed up those commandments when He said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, some rule keepers here. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. That greatly simplifies what it means to keep the rules. For the Pharisees, it wasn't only a matter of keeping the commandments, but all the sets and subsets that they had added as a way to define and clarify what they thought all of those commandments meant. And it turned out to be a burden that no one could keep. I'm glad Jesus boiled it down to two rules, aren't you? Which really encompass all of the Ten Commandments. If you live, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, you're going to keep all those commandments. And then he speaks about religious fervor. As for zeal persecuting the church... Paul was so zealous for the Jewish religion that he persecuted Christians. He saw Christianity, although at that time it wasn't called that yet, it was called the way. He saw saw Christianity as a false religion. Christians were leading people astray. They were a threat to Judaism. You know, zeal really is a good thing. We need to have a fervor for, for God, for the gospel, don't we? It's a good thing. We need more of that. We may not have enough. I think there's a balance, though. You know, uh, there can be people who are overzealous, too. And in that zealousness, uh, they do more damage for the name of Jesus and the church than they do good. You may be able to think of instances or situations that fit that. We've got... you know, we need to be zealous for God. Uh, the Scripture says, always set apart uh, Christ as Lord. Always be ready to, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be ready to share the hope that's within you. And to do so with, do you know the end of that? Gentleness and respect. Oh, sometimes in our zealousness we forget that. It's like... <clears throat> and there, we know, we, we've seen it in our culture of times when that's happened and it turns people off to the, to the church, to the gospel. We need to be careful. And, and you know what? We could have misplaced zeal, too. I mean, 
We can get excited about a lot of things in our lives. We can be good preachers and missionaries for all the wrong things. Hey, I am really into this. Let me tell you about it. Religious zeal is all right. But we have to make sure that that religious zeal is for a relationship with Jesus Christ and not just religion or a lot of other things that are part of our lives that we get excited about. You know, it's amazing how we can talk to people about some of those things that we get excited about, but, boy, it's really hard to talk to them about Jesus. Religious fervor. He also said, we can't have confidence in outward righteousness. As for legalistic righteousness, Paul's talking about his former life as a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. It's batting a thousand. Interesting that Paul does not say, though, that he was sinless, but in regards to outward appearance... Those things everyone could see, he was faultless. He put up a good front all the time because he kept all those rules really well. In 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul talks about those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. That's what people who, I mean, that's how they looked at the Pharisees. Oh, these are the, these are the God, God men. That's the life he lived before Jesus. They'll look good on the outside, but there was a big problem on the inside, and that's the place where God looks, huh? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's where Saul, now Paul, fell short. It's more than looking good to those who are watching. It's what's in the heart. That's what determines who we are when no one is watching. That determines... It's, what in the, it's what's in the heart that determines the kind of person we are behind the doors of our own home. See, looking good will not save you. So then he goes on here in the, in the last, uh, from verses 7 through 11. He talks about the benefits then of confidence rightly placed in Jesus Christ as Savior. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And again, those things he listed, they're not bad things. But when it, when it came to salvation, earning salvation, garbage. They would do him no good. In other words, what, whatever supposed advantages Paul had because he was a Pharisee and did all these things that looked right, they counted for nothing when he encountered Christ on the, the road to Damascus. The things that Paul once thought so important to his right standing for, before God were actually just a loss to him now. And so, what are the benefits then of a, of a, a confidence rightly placed in Jesus Christ as Savior? Well, first of all, it's an intimate relationship with Jesus. Paul said, what is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
You know, we could take all the advantages in the world, all the riches in the world, all the religions in the world, and it is all a loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus because none of those things will get us to heaven. Nothing in the entire world compares to knowing Jesus. I don't know if we always have that perspective, but it's true. One of the supreme benefits that belong to those who have a right standing with God is knowing Jesus Christ personally and savingly. He is the one who saves us. Aren't you glad? A lot of folks know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. See, the difference comes when you know Jesus because you have made Him your Savior and now have a personal relationship with Him. And what a treasure that is. When When we put our confidence in the right place, then we end up with right priorities. Paul says, For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul had a whole new set of priorities. Or better said, one great priority under which all all other priorities fell. All those things that had been priorities in Paul's life fell by the wayside when he met Jesus. What was most important in his life now was knowing Jesus and growing in in his relationship with him. So priority, priority in Paul's life, Jesus first. Everything else fell below that. And when Jesus is first in our lives, all other priorities are determined by and follow below, fall below gaining Christ, growing and knowing Jesus. Then he said, when our confidence is in the right place, we have righteousness by faith. Remember, he had a legalistic righteousness. No, this is righteousness by faith. Paul spent many years trying to be righteous before God. He worked day after day to get and maintain outward righteousness, to look right. But when he encountered Jesus, he became truly righteous. And as he said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that is by faith. Paul realized his own righteousness counted for nothing. Again, it goes back to that dirty rags picture. That's how his own righteousness, that legalistic righteousness, looked in God's eyes. Paul's own righteousness was self-righteousness. It could never be perfect and seen as righteousness in God's eyes. And so he needed a righteousness that was not his own, but that would be credited to him. And that was the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it was received by faith. Paul's righteousness counted for nothing. Christ's righteousness counted for everything. All he had to do was Trust that Jesus would credit him. Jesus would credit Paul with his own righteousness. That's what he does for us. Aren't you glad that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus? Woo. 
When our confidence is in the right place, we have fellowship. Paul said, I want to know Christ in the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. James Montgomery Boyce explains this well. He writes, The thing that Paul says he wished to know of Jesus Christ was the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. This does not mean that Paul wished to suffer for human sin. Only Jesus could do that. He alone suffered innocently and therefore for others. Paul wished to join in Christ's suffering in a different sense. He wished to stand with Christ in such an indivisible union that when the abuses and persecution that Christ suffered also fell on him, Paul, as he knew they would, he could receive them as Christ did. He wanted to react like Jesus. For he knew that the abuse received like this would actually draw him closer to his Lord. Jesus said we would be blessed when we're persecuted in his name. Listen, we fellowship or participate with with Christ when we are ridiculed for Christ's sake. And then, when our confidence is in the right place, then we can experience Christ-likeness. There's that process in our life of Christ-likeness. Paul said, becoming like him in his death. I want to be like Jesus, he said. Humble, servant-hearted, considering the needs of others, willing to sacrifice for others. Everything that we looked at in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 when it talks about your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And go, Paul goes on to explain what that attitude was. And again, it was humility. It was servanthood. It was the, the, the needs of others before his own. It was the willingness to sacrifice for others. And, and Paul says, I want those things seen in my life. Christ-likeness. Remember this song, I have one deep supreme desire that I may be like Jesus. To this I fervently aspire that I may be like Jesus. I want my heart, His throne to be, so that a watching world may see His likeness shining forth in me. I want to be like Jesus. And then Paul says, when our confidence is in Christ, we have the hope of resurrection. We talked about that last week. Yay! I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection was an astonishing display of power. It demonstrated supremacy over the physical and spiritual realm. And the stress here is on power. Power so mighty that by it Jesus was victor over death. That power both energizes life and gives us hope. But but he's also saying, I want to live in such fellowship with Jesus. I want to be so much like him that I too will experience the resurrection from the dead and life eternal. Isn't that our hope? This isn't all there is. The end isn't the end, like many people see it. It's only the beginning. It's graduation day. I want to attain 
to the resurrection of the dead and life eternal. So where is your confidence for salvation, for right standing with God? In what you can do to earn it? Or in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Bow your heads with me.